from two Enneagram map makers. Charting the unexplored interior landscape of the ego with Chris Hewitt. So welcome back to Enneagram Map Makers. We have had, I think, a spectacular run with with really some of uh, of the great legacy teachers, some of the folks who've shaped this modern tradition, um, the authors of, of really the best books out there, and, and the teachers that that almost all of us who who've done advanced trainings and studies with have either learned from or our teachers and guides have learned from, and today is is no exception. We have Dr. Jerry Wagner, one of the, the early thought leaders in this space, having been part of, of the Jesuit community in Loyola, where the Enneagram really hit the streets, where it really sort of showed up at the, at the very beginning in, in the U.S. His book, Nine Lenses on the World, The Enneagram Perspective, um, his book, The Enneagram Spectrum of Personality Styles, and his Wagner Enneagram Personality Style Scales, really one of the, the, the long-standing, credible tests out there, ha- have shaped the whole conversation. And, and you know this, when you've been around folks who've trained and, and studied or, or certified with Jerry, they, they, they stand out. There's something about them that sort of creates a kind of, of curiosity that makes you wonder, like, Man, where did you pick this stuff up and, and how did you take it so deep? He's been researching the Enneagram for over 40 years and, and he continues to offer trainings. You, you can find those throughout the, the country, but a lot of these are, are located there in Chicago where he lives. Jerry's been part of the board of directors for the International Enneagram Association and was a co-editor of the Enneagram Journal. He's an honorary founder of the IEA and, and, and has been a keynote speaker for several of their conferences. What I loved about this conversation was how accessible he made himself, how personable he, he is, and really um, how human he, he comes across. And, and you see, that's how Jerry is. There's, there's no pretense here. In, in fact, the kind of self-deprecating humor that, that he, he, he often leads with, I think, isn't at his own expense. I, I, I think it's, it's a true mark of his sincere humility and, 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 and really his, I think, honest desire to make connections. What I loved about this conversation was also his vulnerability. Right? One of my friends, um, this filmmaker down in Houston, will, will sometimes ask this question in his interviews, what breaks your heart? And the first time he asked me that, it, it caught me off guard, almost as if it, it knocked the breath out of me. And, and I remember not having felt that open or vulnerable in a long time and, and until I had to kind of grapple for an answer for this. And, and when I asked Jerry what, what breaks his heart, I, I, I don't think I was prepared for the depth of honesty and, and, and the immediate place that he just went to. And, and so it's really, it's really special that he would would open up like that for us in this conversation. And I think that's what you'll find here as you listen to this discussion, that there is just a truth-seeking, honest pilgrim who, who's living a, a prayerful journey of intention forward and, and with a spirit of generosity, making this available and accessible to the rest of us. And so here's my conversation with, with Dr. Jerry Wagner. Okay. Hey, thanks so much, Jerry, for for joining me in this conversation. I appreciate making time for this. I appreciate your your availability. I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and I think this is going to be really, really um, 
an interesting conversation for folks. Can you um, introduce yourself a little bit, where you're at and what your work looks like now um, for folks who, who may not be super familiar with, with some of the things that you've been up to? I'm, I'm in Evanston, uh, which is just north of Chicago. There's a university here, Northwestern, that we don't pay attention to because I taught at Loyola University right down the lake from Northwestern. I've just recently retired from teaching in the psychology department, and I have a a small private psychotherapy practice. It's very private. I'm one of the few people who know about it. Um, I was honored a few years ago being named an honorary founder of the International Enneagram Association. And so the lesson there is if, if you get into something early enough and stay around long enough, uh, you get a prize. So I'm still doing Enneagram trainings. Uh, we got part one, two, and three now. And um, we'd be happy to entertain any questions from anybody about um, those trainings. So that's what I'm up to these days. So I'm kind of semi-retired. Well, con- congratulations on semi-retirement, and um, and and honestly, thanks for 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 your your faithfulness and and your longevity in this space. Um, you you really have added so much. And the truth is, is we all stand on on your shoulders. Like we're we're, we're so I think trying to catch up to some of the things that you had had put out there and some of the ideas that you develop. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the early days of the Enneagram, right? I, 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 if I'm getting this right, it, it was 50 years ago um, in 1969 that Oscar Chasso started to introduce the, the sort of rudimentary building blocks of this in the deserts in Chile. Um, and then a couple years later, right, Claudia Naranjo's began to develop Enneagram types. I, I understand that you learned this really almost at the, at the beginning. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so at the time, I was a Jesuit and uh, studying theology, and Bob Oakes, <coughs> who was a, uh, actually a systematic theologian, if you want to think about the most boring branch of theology, systematic theology would be it. But Bob drifted. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. Bob drifted, and um, in the late 60s, they were doing experiments in New York, some clinical psychologists there, with psychedelic drugs, and Bob got involved in that for purely scientific purposes. Then he went on to Esalen, uh, kind of uh, our version of Mecca, and while he was out there, Claudio Naranjo taught the first class <clears throat> in the Enneagram. Claudio had been down in uh, Arica, Chile, and he learned it from Oscar Ichazo, came back and taught it in California. And um, Bob was in that very first class, uh, Sandra Maitri, who's written two really fine books on the Enneagram, A.H. Almas, was there. And I, I think Helen Palmer, but I, I'm not sure, um, um, anyway, Bob was in the first class. Then he came back to Chicago, taught us a two-semester course in religious experience. It was just a breath of fresh air in, in the midst of all that theology. Uh, and the Enneagram ran through that whole course, two semesters. Uh, so we had a long time to learn it. We had an opportunity to talk to each other. You know, what, is it, what does it mean to feel like you were abandoned if you're a four, you know, and what is all this success stuff if you're a three? So it was really a, a wonderful way to learn uh, from each other. 
Um, I, from there, uh, went to Loyola and got a PhD in psychology and miraculously, the dissertation committee let me do my dissertation on the Enneagram. So it was about the, about the third dissertation, I think, that was done on the Enneagram. And, and it was the first really full written description of the Enneagram. Um, I think that's why I got an honorary uh, founder because I was one of the earliest people to write about the Enneagram. So I should say it was all oral tradition. There was nothing written. I have a bibliography now that goes on for about 20 pages, and your book is in there, by the way. Um, But when I first did my dissertation, there was nothing written. It was all oral tradition. So I thought, well... Instead of having, you know, references in the back, how about we just put in phone numbers and you can call up these people and they'll, you know, they'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. They didn't laugh at that though, but thank you for. Oh man, that's awesome. But it's amazing all the, the websites, the uh, material on YouTube, the books, it just uh, really exploded since the 70s and early 80s when I wrote my dissertation. So. So can you talk a little bit about when, when Bob brought this back to, to Loyola? I, I've, I've heard kind of like conflicting reports on this. Uh, on, on one hand, um, there was this, this notion that Claudio Naranjo had, had made all of his students sign these, these, uh, these contracts of reserve where they wouldn't share this until he gave them explicit permission. But then on the other hand, I heard that, 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 that Bob and, and Claudia actually had a, a, an agreement uh, and even in a working relationship. Can you clear that up a little bit? Cause I, I feel like so much of this modern history is kind of tangled up. Yeah. It's all kind of made up, which is the same for the ancient history of the Enneagram, but it's all right. But I'm not sure what arrangement Bob Oaks had with Claudio um, he asked us mm, not to broadcast what we had learned. I don't remember having to sign anything, you know, saying that I won't tell anybody about this. I think the reason was um, <clears throat> until you really know the system well, don't go blabbing it around. Um, now, that lasted with us about, mm, you know, a half an hour. And then we started to tell everybody. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a difference between oral tradition and written tradition. In, in, uh, in, with Oscar e. Chazo, it was all oral tradition. And if you went to uh, one of his uh, Eureka trainings, the people who were teaching it just read from the manual. So here's what the master said. I mean, it's like oral tradition. You memorize what you've been told and then repeat it uh, word for word. The good thing about that is that tradition gets preserved as is, you know, so it's like kind of set in stone and you don't change it. Um, It doesn't allow room, though, for any um, new growth, which happens when you start publishing things like in the States. And then um, people can add their insights. And so the system is more organic. It kind of develops and grows. That's what's happening these days. Um, So I think that was the reason why you weren't supposed to broadcast this too much uh, until you really n- understood the system. I've, there's something about the Enneagram that once you read, we just had notes on the Enneagram, you know, mimeographed notes, and, and Bob Oaks would call up Claudio 
the night before the, the uh, class, you know, and say, hey, what, I'm talking about eight, you know, what, was St. Paul an eight or was he a one? Or So we were, you know, we were close to the master's voice, uh, Claudio Nerano. Once, once you read a little bit about the Enneagram, there's something about the system that you then think, well, I'm an expert in this. So, like, I learned it, and then I went out and wrote a dissertation on it and did some workshops on it. Um, I had some time to read about it, to study it, to interview people. Um, but I, I have a feeling that, that, that people um, read a little about the Enneagram and then think, oh, I'm an expert in this, and then, then go out and teach it. So there isn't any um, governing body that says, well, that's right, that's wrong. So, you know, listener beware. Does this fit my experience? Um, where's the data to back this up? So, you know, you need to kind of not swallow everything you hear, but, you know, is it useful? Does it help? Does it fit my experience? So it's actually amazing that you were you were right there. I mean, like literally on the edge of this of this being sort of leaked and and, and Claudio I, I, I've, I've, I've seen him um, in in some articles say in a sense like it hit the streets too soon um, do you have any idea why he would have said that like what what would have been behind that because if you were right there in the original circle what what was too soon or or what was hitting hitting wrong in those early days um you know, I think when I read what Claudio wrote about the Enneagram, when I read what Helen Palmer write, wrote about the Enneagram in her first book, and when I, you know, look at my notes from Bob Oaks, it, they're all saying the same thing. So it's not like anybody distorted anything. I think Bob passed on the tradition to us very close to what Claudio Nerano taught him. Uh, Claudio had just learned it from Oscar Ichazo, and I'm um, not quite sure what the happened, but Claudio left early. I don't know if he was invited to leave or if he left on his own, but Oscar Ichazo said he didn't get the whole picture of the Enneagram. He just got part of it. You know, he got maybe uh, 20 Enneagons, but there are 80 of them. So we got what... Claudio Naranjo psychologized because he's a psychiatrist. We got his version of Oscar's version. Not clear where Oscar got it from. Uh, here, here we have a little revelation. He said the Archangel Metatron revealed some of this to him. Um, otherwise, not quite clear where Oscar got it. But I think he's the one who really formulated the Enneagram close to the way we know it. Uh, so he took from a lot of different traditions. And, and one of the things I like about the Enneagram is it, it gives a great framework to hang different theories on. So I've kind of compared some things that Jung wrote and Adler and Karen Horney and, and I just did some stuff on behavioral approaches, cognitive approaches. They all fit nicely with the Enneagram. So it's not saying anything that's not psychologically sound. And I think people are finding these days it's not saying anything that's theologically unsound. You know, I mean, your book and other books coming out in the Christian tradition um, are saying, yeah, the Enneagram is compatible with all this. I, I just came back from uh, Cairo 
to just to drop some names and um, compatible with the Muslim tradition. So there were some Sufi practitioners there who like the Enneagram also. So there's something about it that, that has a universal application and appeal. It's amazing. You know, it's like yeah. it works in Africa, it works in China, it works in uh, Omaha, you know, all kinds of exotic places. And um, and people just have, ones have a lot in common, no matter what gender, what uh, race, what ethnic group they belong to. It's really quite amazing. Yeah. So this is so this is actually really interesting. Like, so Claudio as a as a Gestalt psychoanalyst, I I understand kind of let, let's say triangulated um, what he had learned from Ichaso, um, what he was was doing with um, Gurdjieff's process teaching around the Enneagram, and then of course looking back then at the DSM three and and developing Enneatypes. It sounds like when the Jesuits got a hold of it, they kind of started to. To, to frame this within their spiritual their spiritual context with discernment with f- like religious formation can you can you talk a little bit about that because I actually think that's a huge gift to to what the Enneagram has become this 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 spiritual tool for 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 returning to to maybe the best of ourselves or, or, or finding inner healing or, or supporting our ongoing transformation can can you can you reflect on what that was like when y'all sort of found this tradition and then sort of folded what the Jesuits were, were gifting, were, were gifting religious communities around it. Yeah. I know I had a, um, an ongoing um, letter writing campaign with David Burke, who is an Enneagram teacher in Australia. So I can't say too much bad about David because he's the one who recommended that I get this honorary founder um, di- uh, distinction. But David was saying, I, I think, I, it's a long time ago, I don't remember now what, what we were arguing about, but I think he was saying that the Jesuit tradition changed the Enneagram a little bit. It, it varied from what Ichazo said or what um, Naranjo said. My sense is that the Oaks passed it on pretty pretty accurately as is. And, and I don't know that he added a lot of uh, Jesuit spirituality to it one of the areas would be the the arrows you know where you go when you're balanced or when you're under stress um one of the things that may have got overdone is that if you go against the arrow you're integrating if you go with the arrow you're disintegrating um I, i think now people are saying you can go to the high side or low side whether you're in a balanced place or you can go to the high side or low side if you're in a stressed place. So sometimes stress brings out the best in people. So, um, you know, if you're an eight, um, you go to the, where do you go? It's an eight, a two, um, or a five. You can go to the high side or low side of either one. So the discerning would be, well, are you going in a healthy direction or in an unhealthy direction? So I think the discerning now might be, are you going in a healthy direction or an unhealthy direction. <clears throat> and you can really access the strengths of all nine types, because I think all nine types are in us. And so we've got nine players on our inner team. Use them all. Um, so I tend to, when people take my Enneagram test, I look at not only the high scores, here are the players that you favor and you know well, 
what, what are your low scores and what happened to those players? So maybe you're not putting them out too much because you're not comfortable with them, you're not familiar with them. So I think the discernment would be uh, what, what are the gifts, the strengths, what's the high side of all the types and how can I access that because that's in me. That's kind of a platonic, maybe a Jungian notion. It's like, you know, we're looking for these things outside of ourselves. Um, you know, like I don't have uh, the ability to get focused as a nine, I'm not, uh, so let's say, and so then you marry a three. It's because they're organized and focused. But you got that three in you, so see if you can uh, access it and develop it more in yourself. So... Um, Plato said, you know, you've already got what you're looking for. You, you think you're learning something new, but you already knew it. You just forgot it. Or Jung said these archetypes are in us, so we just need to get in touch with them. Um, I, I think that's part of the philosophy of the Enneagram, you know, that we were born in essence, uh, we drifted, and now we got to get back to essence. I, I'm not sure I buy that. Um, I think I'm more in the Aristotelian tradition. Like you got the potential for it. It's not like it was there full blown and then you lost touch with it. But it's like the, the, the seed is there. You got the potential to become an oak tree out of that acorn. Um, but you need to um, develop it, let it grow, have the right kind of environment, like, you know, like loving, accepting parents. Um, so that's more the humanist tradition, Maslow and Carl Rogers, self-actualizing. You know, the, the potential is there to be all these nine types, and you need to, to work on it a little bit. I think um, if your parents are like Carl Rogers, they love you unconditionally, then there's no reason to be other than who you are. You can, you can stay connected to yourself. But if they start to love you conditionally, well, you know, if you're if you're smart or if you're dumb, if you're uh, take out the garbage, if you you know behave yourself or don't behave yourself, depending on what messages you get from your parents, then you need to be other than who you are or exaggerate who you are. That's what keeps us therapists in business. You know, luckily uh, there, there was only one Carl Rogers, and he couldn't be the parent to everybody, so we get to do that. A little bit. So, can you can you, can you back up just a little bit? You, you you mentioned this this notion of essence or returning to essence. Can what do you mean by essence, and and what's the the, the work of, of of returning to that or or unearthing that or remembering that? Yeah, good question. I, mean, I, I suppose another word would be your true self, uh, as opposed to your false self, your authentic self. Uh, a existentialist would say, as opposed to your inauthentic self. So it's the self you were before you started to get conditioned by your culture, society, religion, parents. Um, you know, the real self is kind of um, talked about in self-psychology. And, and one of the self-psychologists said the, that the therapist or the other person is the guardian of the true self, the real self. So it's kind of getting in touch with, well, what do I really want? What do I really believe? Um, what gives me life? What gives me energy? Um, 
in some ways, at the end of the day, what makes me say, well, that was a, that was a good day. Uh, as a five, I think I would say, uh, well, I learned something today. Three might say I accomplished something today. You know, uh, four would say I, 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 I've had a deep, meaningful relationship with someone today. So uh, kind of getting in touch with um, what's energizing for each of the types as opposed to what should we do uh, which would be the idealized self-image, uh, but what do we what do we really want? What do we really value? I don't think that's easy to come to because the conditioning is there. So it's hard to tease out what's the real me, what's the false me. So I suppose part of it is what what gives me energy, which would be the real self. What really drains my energy, which would be the false self. Uh, Karen Hornite talks about that. I think, I think Claudio Naranjo used some of Karen Hornite's theories in his uh, approach, particularly the idealized self-image uh, of each type. And that's the shoulds, the tyranny of the shoulds. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, let me ask you this: you you'd mentioned your test, so I I. Uh you know, there are some folks who get a little fussy out there in, 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 in the Enneagram space about how folks should determine to discern their own type. And I know there's some folks out there who are just really adamant that the tests are unhelpful. You actually have developed one of the best, most durable, lasting tests. Can, can you talk about that? Can you talk about what it was that, that, that compelled you to, 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 to write that, um, what the process was like, and, and how do you sort of face the, the so-called controversy around using tests to discover discover any type? A good question. I think the people who have trouble with tests are, are obviously the ones who haven't taken my test, which would convert them to the <laughs> testing tradition. Of course. Of course. Um, I, why did I come up with a test? Um, well, because I had to do some research, and it takes a lot of time to interview people so in um, David Daniels and Helen Palmer's tradition, the narrative tradition, they teach people how to interview people to help them figure out what style is theirs. Um, so then you, you've got kind of um, um, an expert assessment. So you talk to the expert and then they help you discover what type you are. Uh, that's, that's time... Um, takes a lot of time in the research world. And so if you can give somebody a test that can come up with the same results, um, it's, it's, it's more efficient. So I originally had a, a sentence test and it was okay, but not great. Then I started to develop a test that has single words or phrases. In a way, it's like the middle section of the Myers-Briggs. I kind of borrowed that idea from them. And it's a little bit more like a Rorschach test. So it's, it's um, you know, looking at an ink blot and say, well, what does this remind you of? What might this be? Here are these words. How do they fit you? So I have a, a Likert scale. It kind of almost never fits me, almost always fits me. And then a range in between. Um, I, I think that's a better way of going about it than uh, forced choice. You know, that's the. It's also the Myers Briggs, or true or false. It gives you a little bit more uh, 
range for answering. The current test is probably about the, I don't know, seventh or eighth version of it. So I keep kept using words and phrases, and then I did an item analysis to see if those words actually went with the scale that's supposed to measure that type. And if it didn't correlate with the other items in that scale, then I threw it out and put in another one. So that's called inter-item reliability. Um, and so that was pretty good. It's a, it's a, the scales are about 0.8 maybe, which is not bad for a personality inventory. Test retest would be if you take the test now, um, will you be the same type, you know, 10 years from now? Mm, that worked fairly well. Mm, so that the, the over time reliability. The one that you would be looking at for validity is does this test actually predict the type <clears throat> that you are? And that's about it works about eight out of ten times. So my instructions on the test is if you don't like this highest test, highest scale you came out on, try the next two because no test is perfectly accurate. Um, if you want a gold standard, you would you would take in a, a kind of an invalidated inventory. Mine is the only one, as far as I know, published by a major psychological test company. Brag, brag, uh, pat, pat myself on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. So they thought the statistics were good enough to publish the test. Um, so, so you give somebody a test. Then you might ask people who know them, well, what type do you think they are? You might ask an expert, go talk to this person, uh, what type do you think they are? So you get a kind of a, an expert rating, uh, somebody who knows you well rating, and a self rating. And if the three of those agree, maybe you're that style. I think there's interjudge reliability is not 100% either. So if you go to talk to one person and they interview you, they might say, oh, well, you're a one. Talk to another person who's an expert, they interview you, they said, oh, you're a three or you're an eight. So even... The uh, interjudge ratings are not always a hundred percent reliable, but if you put them all together, the more data you can get coming together. Who do you think you are? Who do other people say you are? Who do some experts say you are? Then you might get closer to well, this is the strategy or style that you seem to prefer. It's amazing, and it's amazing that, like I said, that it's it's had such a, a durable lasting sort of lifespan in 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 the in the spaces that it has because i i do think like i said the, with the controversy around using tests to bring type forward there is a kind of person that actually wants that that's looking for that that actually needs it so it's amazing can you talk about when you first came to terms with your own type and and what was i like how did how did you realize what your your type was? Well, a good question. So when I in the course with Bob Oaks, I immediately narrowed myself down to a, a one, a four, a five, a six, and a seven, and, and maybe a nine. <laughs> uh, and Bob Oaks said, uh, "Yeah, that's right." And Bob said, "You're a five. I said, "Okay." So I went with the uh, expert authority's opinion which seemed to kind of fit. So then I've got, you know, if, you, if I'm a five, then you've got the four and the six on either side. That's my um, 
wings. I go to the seven when I'm stressed out, you know, like talking to you over the radio. I go to a one, two. There's a, there's a connection between the one and the five. We're both perfectionists in our own way. Um, sometimes I, I've, I have a lot of nine in me, too. Um, but the thing about nines is I don't know what merging is. As a five, I like my boundaries. Good fences make good neighbors. Uh, this is me, that's you. The word we kind of makes me nervous. Uh, and nine seem to be kind of comfortable with that. So I think the five fits. The um, going to the eight and going to the seven makes sense. I have no idea about navigating in a boat, but they say that in order to figure out where you are, you need three points. And, and so that's sometimes helpful, figuring out what type you are. You know, where do you go for stress? Where do you go for balance? Where do you go for your, you know, most home style? Then you got three points of reference. Um, going to the eight is still hard for me. I, um, that's where I'm like a nine. I like to accommodate. I don't want to make people mad. I'm not too keen about conflict. Eight seem to be a little bit more comfortable with that than I am. So I have to get myself kind of uh, aided up before I call Comcast, you know, and, and, and talk about, can I lower my rate a little bit here? Uh, it's a little easier to go to the seven. Um, I tend to be shy, but if I got to present, then I'm more like a ham. And, you know, so I'm, I can be entertaining. Um, I can see the seven would push me more into my head. Well, let's think about being assertive, or maybe I can read another book about it, as opposed to, you know, why don't you actually try to be assertive? Uh, so I think of that connection, the five and the eight, the contemplative in action. Five is the contemplative, eight's the action. So that's a little Jesuit spirituality also. So that, that, um, that helped. Uh, um, I also think I'm kind of, the, the, in, when I first learned it, it was maybe still important these days, but, you know, figuring out, well, what is your type? What's your strategy? What's your style? I like style. It's a little less rigid than a type. You know, it gives you a little bit more flexibility, style. Uh, but the I think the emphasis these days is is on, well, how can you access all nine strategies? Like they're all useful. So getting in touch with them, mm, that makes that makes sense to me. That's kind of the way I teach it these days. I was going to say with the five, you know, we, we tend to disconnect, when in doubt, hide out. And I, I can still do that if, if, if there's, if I'm getting too much mm, energy coming in as an introvert, like the circuit breaker clicks on and I'm saying, okay, that's enough. There's a line, Emily Dickinson, the world is too much with us, probably written like a good introvert. So I, I disconnect, the circuit breaker clicks in, and then I need to remind myself to reconnect. And, and you know, then I could be the last person to leave the party. But that kind of connect-disconnect has been helpful. Kind of noticing, catching that when I um, withdraw. Enneagram map makers will continue in a moment. 
In Chris's book, The Enneagram of Belonging, you'll discover that knowing ourselves doesn't necessarily mean we accept ourselves. Most of us tend to curate the personality of our type, leading with the traits we perceive as positive and sidelining the traits that cause us shame. But what if it all belonged? Rather than furthering our own fragmentation, what if we dared to make peace with the whole of who we are with bold compassion? The Enneagram of Belonging is your guide to this essential journey. Get your copy today, wherever books are sold. So let me let me ask you this. So some people, it seems like they have, it's almost like an existential crisis or like a humiliation of the ego when their their type is finally outed or they come to terms with it. Why do you why do you think that is? Well, I suppose you're embarrassed. What you thought was a virtue turns out to be a vice or turns out to be an exaggeration or there's a hook to it. Well, I thought I was very loving and helpful, but oh, I see. I really uh, I want to be appreciated and and um, you know uh, my worth comes from being needed. That would be like a two. Um, oh, I, you know, like an eight, you know, I thought I was kind of seeking justice, but actually I just like to be in control. Or a five, you know, well, I actually, I thought I'd like to teach until I discovered, actually, I just like to learn, you know. Um, the, the only type that seems to not fall into that, oh, I'm embarrassed to be that type, is the seven. The sevens usually say, well, doesn't everybody want to be a seven? Why wouldn't you want to, you know, have fun and be optimistic and be adventuresome? So it takes them a little while to realize, mm, maybe there's something a little compulsive or oh, ego-based mm, <laughs> In, in that approach. Yeah, I think, I think it just our ego is, is very sensitive and um, doesn't respond kindly to having its flaws pointed out to us. Yeah. So let's, so let's if, you, if you don't mind, let's talk about that for a second. The, the sensitivity of the, the ego of the five, um, I, I think it's probably really misunderstood. Can you- um, It's also none of your business. Maybe share a little bit. Right. So can you share a little bit about- what 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 is sensitive in there? Like what's what's misunderstood about the type five, and and um, and how can we better sort of love the fives in our life? Like how can we better relate to to this really kind of this 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 phenomenal brilliance, but this kind of boundaryed sort of hermit? <laughs> yes, if you'd like. Um, I don't think you have to be smart to be a five or intelligent. You just, just need to value learning. Um, you know, I got a PhD, and it's not because I'm smart. I'm just obsessive compulsive. You know, I think if you just stick with something, you eventually get it. Um, the sensitive, the hot spot for the five, at least for me, is I like to think of myself as knowing and if someone says, well, didn't you think about that? Oh, God, embarrassment. Oh, well, no, I didn't think about that. That's why we fives like to get the whole big picture. Um, my hero, Ken Wilbur, who identifies himself as a five, um, is trying to find a paradigm that contains all other paradigms so that nothing gets left out. I also notice I'm taking the attention off of myself, putting on to Ken Wilbur now, 
So that's one of the things we fives like to kind of be invisible, hide out, not be seen. That's uh, kind of dangerous to be out there in the open. Uh, so not knowing is um, kind of a touchy thing for fives because then we have to be spontaneous or instead of discovering what am I allowed to do, what's legitimate, you know, can I negotiate here at all or is it, you know, whatever you say, I got to go along with. So it's it's hard for us fives to not know. And part of knowing is, well, what am I allowed to do? Maybe that's a little bit the six wing also. You know, what's the, what's the, what are the rules? As opposed to, mm, I don't, you know, I'm, this is a stereotype of eights. I think eights just make up the rules. Well, here's what, here's what we're going to do. As opposed to, here's what we should do. I'll decide what we can do. Um, mm, I think fives, at least I want to have close relationships. Um, I do things to get in the way of that, you know, like I never answer my phone or leave my room. That's not good for relationships. Um, slow to disclose too much about myself. That's not too good about relationships. So sometimes, and I teach this a little bit too, our very strategy that helps us survive gets in the way of helping us to thrive. It gets in the way of what we really want. You know, so if you want to have an intimate eye-thou relationship, uh, is not disclosing yourself and staying in your room the best way to go about that? Mm, probably not. Uh, if you want a close relationship and you're a two, is being smothering and uh, overwhelming, I mean, that gets people to push you away rather than draw you close to them. So the irony of a lot of these strategies is um, the very thing we're trying to do to protect us from being hurt brings about the very thing we're trying to avoid. The damnedest thing. The problem with neuroses. Uh, I'm also aware as a five that I'm now talking in generalities and avoiding talking about myself. So I, that, I thought that was rather clever. Yeah, so I, I actually want to, if you don't mind, want to want to get you talking about yourself here. How do you bring all this into the ways that you nurture and nourish your own spirituality? Uh, good question. You know, I think it's mm, realizing um, that knowledge comes not vicariously, not from reading, book learning, but from experience. <sighs> So these days, um, I like your mentor, uh, Richard Rohr, who talks about, you know, rather than learning about God, can you actually experience God? That's certainly in the Ignatian tradition. Um, you know, so prayer is, is a way of um, actually relating to God, not just um, thinking about God. So that's there. Um, I'm not quite here yet. I, I just went to a, uh, a conference in Cape Town, if I may uh, drop another name, and went to a talk on unitary consciousness, which was really a profound uh, workshop. So we fives were together, and we kind of decided that 
if we want to understand death and and really those existential issues, the mind may not be the way to get there. So that's a problem. Here God gives us this great mind and then says, okay, don't use it. There are other ways of learning these things. You know, like it might be love. It might be uh, just stop thinking and just be present. Um, like there are other ways of knowing, learning, which we fies love so much, besides thinking. And it's allowing mm, our heart, our body, as well as our head uh, to be in, in, engaged, to be involved. So mm, it's hard to get out of your head because, you know, it's kind of you're used to living up there. I think that's what is required. So how do you get into your heart then? How do I get to my heart? Feelings. Feelings. Yeah. Um, and, and so how do you relate to your feelings? Or, or let me ask you this, actually. Um, what breaks your heart? Well, that's an easy question. Uh, my wife uh, passed away three years ago now. And um, she had brain tumors, which then became brain cancer. Um, three years ago, I think about her every day. Um, I really miss her. Um, I made the mistake of getting attached to someone. And the cost of being attached is when you lose them, you really miss them. So feelings are much more uh, on the surface now. And... Um, particularly sadness and grief, um, some regret. I wish I had been more present for her as a five. You know, I was busy working and reading. And, um, so those feelings are there. Um, I suppose I'm, I'm talking about that feeling now. That's not um, something I like to do or am comfortable doing. Uh, expressing my feelings in the moment. Um, it's hard not to tear up when I think about, you know, missing Bernie. So it's like I don't have that control anymore, which is fine. I, I wouldn't want to not miss her. Um, but I think it's it's um, hard for me, and, and it looks like it's hard for other fives too, to just let you see what we're feeling right in the present. We <laughs> have to go away and think about it. Then we can tell you what we're feeling. So there's a little gap, space between what we feel and what we express, what we show. So there's kind of a shutting down, processing it, then talking to you about it. So the trick is, can you not put anything between your feeling and the other person, you know, like a lot of thought and reflection, but just trust that feeling. It's okay. Good thing to have. It's a way of connecting. That's what they say anyway. And I'm I'm really sorry and 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 thank you for, for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So can we talk a I, I really would love to, to to just hear a little bit more about your own process with, with using the Enneagram and, and, and how it's maybe helped you drop your, your head into your heart, how it's helped you open your heart a little bit. Like, um, what are some of the, 
the, the processes that you think have maybe created the greatest transformation within you through the through the tradition here? You mean through the Enneagram or through just living through life through life? Well, yeah, I guess through the Enneagram as a as a maybe as a map of 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 helping us find our way through life. Yeah. Um, well, the mm, good question. I mean, yeah, the Enneagram is a map. Again, I think the um, uh, looking at my own kind of beliefs and the lenses that I look at the world through, so mm, helps me realize. Okay, there you go again. You're magnifying people aren't interested in what you have to say, so you don't say anything. There you are, you're magnifying, well, if I express my feelings, people, I'll look foolish. That's kind of a maladaptive belief. Um, if I say something dumb, uh, that's the worst thing that can happen. Mm, yeah, no, it's not. So it, it, it has helped get in touch with some of the thoughts that I have that would lead me to withdraw or lead me to not disclose. So they're maladaptive thoughts. And then um, I think getting in touch with um, maybe the eight, which would be the body, you know, kind of um, what does my body have to say about this? Um, there's a new theory. I, I, well, it's David Daniels. It might be in your book, The Sacred Enneagram, where, where the equilateral triangles, they kind of redraw the figure a little bit so that eight and five and two are connected. So when I get in touch with my two, there is a part of me that wants to be useful and helpful, and the two is certainly more in touch with their feelings than I think the five is. So um, going over that direction and being a little bit more comfortable with expressing how I feel, um, it has helped me grow. That's still a uh, cutting edge, I got to say that. Mm. Mm. I still got to make more friends with my feeling self. What is this, a therapy session here? Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> oh boy um so can, let me ask you this uh so you know over the last few years this the, the enneagram's starting to show up everywhere and, and it's actually gaining a lot of traction and popularity do you have any any theories or ideas why this is is suddenly sort of on buzzfeed and instagram meme accounts and, and coffee mugs and t-shirts um that's a good question. I mean, one of the things that I'm kind of enthused about is there are more young people getting interested. I mean, there for a while, it was a bunch of just the old gray-haired, you know, dudes and dudesses coming to these Enneagram trainings, workshops. Now, the young people are getting more interested. I think it is uh, media, uh, Instagram and, and Facebook and YouTube, and um, it's just more accessible which is great, you know, so when we die off, the Enneagram won't die off. There's still people liking it. Um, I think the danger is it can be superficial, you know, so well, here's a, you know, here's a, a tweet or a um, Twitter, well, one line. Well, there's a lot of depth to the Enneagram, and so it might take some time. 
The other thing, I'm just making this up as we go along, I really like trainings in person. Uh, there's online training. Um, I just think you can learn more by being with people. So hearing like panels of ones, twos, threes, four, fives, interacting on the spot. There's something about that, this is odd for a five to say, that kind of direct contact that I think is 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 really good. And and so if everything stays online or stays digital and electronic, you don't have that human connection. And I, I think that's important. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right, actually. Yeah, of course I'm right. I thought it. But uh, let's moving on though. <laughs> no, but I yeah, I think like I I do think there's something about like learning this as it's trans being trans trans transmitted or or passed along from one person who's actually taken it inward. And and I do think you're right. Like there's there's incredible books. You have actually fabulous books out there yourself. But when you're with someone who's actually done their own work, there's a kind of energetic level where man, there's a frequency or resonance where this just it lands in your body, and 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 I do think you're right. Like I think the this, the the disembodied social media space may be thinning this out, while simultaneously helping helping it make become more accessible for more people than it ever ever yeah. has. Yeah, I think another thing, and and you're probably doing this a little bit too. Um, the Enneagram has been kind of available to those who have a little money and can afford the training or people who are educated. Um, it hasn't gotten to the poor as much as it could. Um, that struck me in um, South Africa when I was just there. So again, it's the kind of the educated and the more wealthy who know the Enneagram. Same in, in Cairo, it's, it's more the, in Egypt, it's more the educated and more the wealthy that can afford to come and learn about the Enneagram. So we need to find ways to bring it to those who are not as um, well off. And, and um, so the Enneagram Prison Project is doing that for prisoners. There's a woman who did one of my trainings, uh, brings Enneagram to the homeless. Or uh, Bill Creed and the Ignatian Project is bringing the Enneagram, uh, the uh, spiritual exercises, the Jesuit approach, to uh, the the poor. Um, so I think that's be nice to have the Enneagram be more. Um, what's the word I want? Not not just for the um, well-to-do, but make it available for everybody. And I think that. Yeah, IEA is doing that by offering scholarships for young folks and you know maybe people who who don't have the big bucks and and so the the anagram will benefit them as 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 well as those who can afford it. Yeah, and I know that you've made some commitments yourself to 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 making room for for folks who um maybe might not have access to it. But I, I think you're right. I think if this is the luxury of the non-poor then that actually kind of almost shows the, the lack of transformation of the, the folks that are pricing people out. Um, so wh I wonder what else you could, could comment on in terms of what do you see as some opportunities right now in the modern landscape of uh, how to make this more accessible or, or, or what do you see as, as some of the opportunities for this to, to continue in the tradition of transformation that, that you and the early Jesuits sort of 
sort of gifted this into the world to to, to become? Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose to start out with uh, the internet and and kind of the. Um, digital approach so you get people interested that way or get them hooked but then somehow and i don't not quite sure how you make this transition then actually go to a workshop go to uh, uh, a talk although i think it takes more time even go to like an enneagram retreat so that you can let it sink in more and actually bring about some kind of transformation i mean it's it superficial knowledge of the Enneagram is interesting, uh, but I don't know that it brings about any kind of, uh, not necessarily any kind of change. Um, so, I, you know, that's a good question. I um, Probably better ask a seven who are the visionaries, you know, where, <laughs> where they see the Enneagram going and how to facilitate that. Um, that's what I would like to see. So you know, kind of get people aware of the enneagram, but then, then okay, now what do I do with it? Where can I go to deepen my knowledge? And maybe you don't have any. There are enneagram coaches, enneagram therapists, so that you can deepen your um, awareness of the enneagram. Is that vague enough? Yeah. No. No. That's great. So hey, we we just have a couple more minutes, Jerry. Um, I'm wondering if there's any questions that I haven't asked you that you want me to ask or if there's anything that you want to touch on that we haven't gotten to here. Um, you know, the only thing I can think of, we, we, we've done pretty well. Um, maybe the, um, you know, so it, it, um, the, the, is the Enneagram set in stone? So should we pass it on? exactly the way Oscar Ichazo wrote it and Claudio Norano wrote it, or is the Enneagram, you know, there's a, there's a um, global conference in Chicago. You and I are going to be there. It's called the Enneagram as a verb. So it's living. It's, it's uh, active. It's um, not set in stone in each person or maybe in theory itself. So there's room for the development of the Enneagram. And, and a lot of the books coming out are adding some things. So um, I don't know if it's the same, you know, we get the same argument with the um, Constitution these days. Should we interpret it exactly the way the founders of the country thought about it? Or now that we're a couple of hundred years down the road, can we rethink it a little bit? Is there room for interpretation? Uh, and I think we're going in the direction of, yeah, there's room for change, interpretation, for growth. But then you need to, okay, um, where's that coming from? What's the data to support that? Does it fit my experience? Is this a useful uh, addition? Or does it kind of lead down a blind alley? Um those would be my criteria. I mean, who said so? Where is it written? There are different validity sources. I mean, the ones I like is, uh, does it fit my experience and is it useful? Does it make sense? So, um, yeah, I think there's, there's, and also Nichazo's changing his words for it and, and Nerano's changing his ideas. 
he's got a whole new idea about subtypes. I was really sad. I went to the latest IEA conference hoping to actually see uh, Nerano again, but he passed away right before the conference. So I'm not sure where he's getting his new ideas about the subtypes from. If he's he just thinking about it or if he's talking to people. Uh, but again, um, does it make sense? Is it useful? Is it, um, does it fit people's experience, the new way of thinking about subtypes? So that's kind of yeah. what I would add. Yeah, one of the things that Richard Rohr says is that, um, you know, the, 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 little un, the literal interpretation of anything is the lowest level of understanding it. And uh, I, I, I think you're right. Like, I, I think there are some folks who do get a little grumpy if you, you misstate the, 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 the traditional languaging for the passions or fixations or if you're trying to rewrite the, the, the sort of code for the, for the instincts. But my spiritual director, who actually is a, a Jesuit priest here in Omaha, Father Larry Gillick, he, he taught me that, right? The, 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 the word intelligence comes from the two Latin words, which essentially means to collect what's in between the spaces. And, and, and right, that's the intelligence. It's, it's, it's sort of picking up, it's perceiving what's implicit. And so I think you're right. Like, I think the Enneagram as a verb is, is really an exciting proposition. And I'll say this, Jerry, like, I, I see the Enneagram as a verb in your life, like your, your own ability to, to, to change your mind the ways that your heart has changed, the way that you've actually grown and, and, and been really vulnerable as a five with your growth over the years. Like, I, I appreciate that. You're one of the, the, the most charming and, and, and winsome fives out there. And, and I really respect and admire how you've allowed this, this teaching to shape you and inform you. That's, that's a, it's a real gift and it's a, a real great example. So I appreciate, appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. That I have one other thought, uh, which is that, of course, what else would a five do? Would think, uh, why have I been changing? You know, Piaget talks about schemas. So we got a way of looking at things or doing things, and then you assimilate everything into that schema. You put your glasses on, everything comes through those lenses. But we also have to accommodate the schema depending on the new situation, the new data that's coming in. So we both assimilate to what we've got, and we have to change our schema to fit the new data. I find that happens when I, when I have these trainings, and I, we have panels, and people talk about themselves. And so I've got to accommodate, okay, here's what I thought about sevens or threes or fours, but now you're saying this about yourself. Okay, so I got to accommodate my scheme a little bit. So I suppose I would say to you know new Enneagram enthusiasts, don't rigidly hold on to uh, you know the prototype or here's you know what people say about the type, but actually listen to what the people who are that type say about themselves and be willing to accommodate a little bit uh, to fit the new data. My tribute to Piaget. Yeah, that's great. And I actually saw a paper that you did on schema therapy and its correlation with the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. And I actually loved that. I mean, I love the work that you're doing kind of on the edges of of, of pushing this off of just the sort of typical um, kind of worn out, used up, overdone sort of conversations. And so it's really, your, your contributions are, are, are phenomenal, really, really important. So thank you for those too. You're welcome.
thanks for acknowledging greatness well, when, you, when you experience it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I seriously am so thankful for you being a part of this. Thanks for making time for this. Um, really appreciate um, the the legacy of your vocational fidelity, the the consistency of your witness in this space, and then. Honestly, I want to say this, the generosity of, of how you've opened your, your heart and your mind to others and included so many folks in, in, in your own ongoing learning. Um, you're really, really a true luminary for us, Jerry, so I appreciate it. Well, thanks for including me, and, and I'm looking forward to hearing what, what other people have to say that you're going to interview. So this is a good project you come up with. So I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Jerry and I hope you keep up with his work um, chase down his books chase down his his, his trainings and uh, really for those of you in the mental health um, community mental health professionals for those of you working with a, a therapist or, or a psychologist as as you try to incorporate some of the things that you've learned from your type into your own personal lives I, I think you'll find Jerry's contributions to be among the most supportive, the most enabling, and the most practical for this aspect of our ongoing transformation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Enneagram Mapmakers. Special thanks to Ryan O'Neill for the gorgeous, as always, Sleeping at Last music, and the gifted and talented genius that is Corey Pig for producing the show. And lastly, the sweet voice you hear helping at the beginning of the show is my dear friend Edith Moore, all the way from Christchurch, New Zealand.